Welcome to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network, a place for discussing healthcare issues and solutions in New Mexico. For this episode, I spoke with Annie Young, the Executive Director of the New Mexico Medical Society. We talked about how she and the Medical Society are lobbying for change to policies that impact healthcare in New Mexico. I really enjoyed talking with her, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Annie, could you briefly introduce yourself and uh, explain your role in the New Mexico Medical Society? Sure. Um, My name is Annie Young, and I'm the Executive Director of New Mexico Medical Society. I have been with the Society for 23 years now, and I have served as the Executive Director for the last three. Um, My role as the executive started in March of 2020, about two weeks before COVID happened. So all the grand plans that I had um, took an immediate detour off into the COVID pandemic. Um, But I started with the uh, Medical Society as a part-time employee, um, working on the continuing medical education department and then developed, along with um, two of our physicians, a large grant program. We wrote grants from um, and received them from the Department of Health and Robert Woods Johnson's foundation to work on um, preventive care and make preventive care accessible to New Mexico physicians. So we produced Um, conferences, books, pamphlets, all sorts of educational information on prevention. That, from that point, um, I became the associate executive director and started helping with the legislative process. I was behind the scenes writing white papers and activating members to contact their legislators and doing all of the behind the scenes. We had um, our executive director and lobbyist up in Santa Fe working that angle. Um, Once I became the executive director, that changed somewhat. Um, We still have an excellent lobbyist who runs the show in Santa Fe for us. And we now have an attorney who helps with the bill drafting and the writing of the papers and the, the legal aspects of the bills that, that we put forth. Um, that's how I became involved. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's kind of a, a long-term development from part-time focused on education to full-time focused on the big picture of where we want to move medicine in the state. Great. And we will definitely dive into the legislative process, but a couple more questions about your background first. So how did you first get interested in healthcare or medicine, and how did you decide that this was the right way for you to do it? Because there are so many ways to affect that kind of thing, and this is a unique one as far as I can tell. I was one of those um, students that was interested in a lot of different things and didn't have a set pattern in the set goal. Um, my f- first 
real job was um, working for a magazine. And um, my, my BA is in psychology and Spanish and geology. So I took that, went into, um, got my master's in education and reading education, reading, diagnosis, and remediation. And from that work, um, the brain started fascinating me. Um, how it worked, how it interprets signals, um, looking at it more um, functionally than psychologically. And um, I ended up back in Albuquerque and started working with a neuropsychologist in town. And so my skills of um, testing children, psychological testing and um, intellectual testing, transferred perfectly to this neuropsychology. So I started in that area. And then from then became a cognitive therapist at a rehab hospital. Um, and then I was introduced to the medical society and it just kind of went from there. I um, developed into, I took that background of the medical field and the kind of the neurological area um, and patient care and turned it into more of the, the business function and the policy making along with a lot of education. I'm very much interested in um, education still and educating our healthcare workforce. Great. Now might be a good time to start talking about uh, the, the legislative process. So what is it in New Mexico? How does it work? And why is that relevant to healthcare and medicine? The legislative process is, um, you, will, you will always hear it described as sausage making. It's very messy. And a lot of times you don't want to see what's, what the process is. It's very messy. Um, and it's easier and better to look at the result of it. Um, that's true in New Mexico, that's true all over the United States. Um, it's a very, um, it can be a very collaborative process and it can be a very competitive process. Um, you have different interest groups competing for the same resources. So that's at the, at the very base of it. And lobbyists and attorneys rule because they're extremely good at making a case and you have to make the case for your project and along those lines how does that change uh, healthcare delivery in the state you have the elected lawmakers mm -hmm. they are passing laws that affect the policies of healthcare Mm -hmm. And they're involved in insurance and preventive care, um, how we treat children, the medical malpractice laws, um, how much money goes into Medicaid, what it can be used for. They are involved in the, in the nuts and bolts of the healthcare system. And the medical society works to educate them on 
what the different bills that they're that they're reading and debating how those will affect the healthcare system and the patients and the doctors. Um, it's not always clear when you read a bill what the long-term effects of it are. And um, our legislators are elected and they have day jobs. Most of them have day jobs. That's not their full-time job. Many of them are attorneys and have clients and, and are able to work around their, their legal practice. But we have teachers, we have businessmen, we have morticians, um, we have pilots, we have everything. And they do not always know healthcare because the business of healthcare is extremely complicated. Mm-hmm. And depending on the perspective that you're coming at it from, you know, whether you're a hospital administrator, a business practice, an individual provider, an insurance carrier, um, a patient, a patient advocate, um, you have different perspectives and needs and wants. And um, we try to make it understandable to the legislators what kind of policies they are promoting and whether it's beneficial or not to the health of, of our populace. Great. And as far as this last legislative session goes, can you talk a little bit about um, what progress has been made or, or maybe what setbacks you have faced as an organization? The 2023 session was um, extremely successful for the Medical Society. Great. We had a fantastic year. It was a very tough year. It was, um, I think it added five years to everybody's life Mm -hmm. on the team. Um, But we have, we've been, um, the strategy and the goal has been the same for the last two years. I mean, the underlying problem is that we don't have, um, we don't have enough doctors. Right. That's the take home. So it's the medical workforce and it's not just physicians, it's nurses, it's physical therapists, it's ambulance, you know, EMTs. It is the entire medical system. But as the medical society, our primary focus is on the MDs and the DOs. Right. And that workforce. Mm -hmm. So that's our goal. And excuse me for using a, a gun reference, but instead of a sniper, we took the shotgun approach. So it's like, there's not one problem and there's not one solution. So we, um, we attacked the, the shortage by looking at loan repayment, rural healthcare grants, Medicaid reimbursement, increasing Medicaid reimbursement, um, shortening the the credentialing um, timeline. And then the big elephant is the medical malpractice. Mm -hmm. So we had those those five as our immediate goals, knowing that we might not get everything, but these strategies, if we can make inroads in those, it will start to help 
the recruitment and retention of medical professionals. Great. And, and what specific headway did you make in each of those goals this year? Okay. For the Medicaid rates, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Primary care, maternal and child health services, and behavioral health, those rates will go up to 120% of Medicare rates. And they, so they are moving from about 75, 80% to 120%. If those um, practices are in rural areas, you add another 6%. So for example, a big winner would be a pediatric practice in um, Los Lunas or Clayton. Mm-hmm. They would, their Medicaid increase would be 126% of Medicare. Right. That's a huge one. And the other um, important part for everyone else, everyone else who's not a primary care or um, child and maternal health, the MCOs cannot um, contract for less than the um, Medicaid fee for service. Okay. So it gives a base, there's a bottom under which a contract cannot be written. That's a huge improvement. So Medicaid was a big winner. Um, the higher education loan repayment, um, we were able to get that changed so that it, it's not limited to primary care. It's any type of doctor. That's any, fantastic. It wow. is. But it I, is. I remember looking up last year um, what the re- loan repayment was like in New Mexico, and it literally just included primary care, mm-hmm. which is hard to commit to if you don't know what you want to do uh, once you specialize or if you specialize. And we need everybody. Everybody. So why limit it? Yeah, that's so awesome. So it's fantastic. Yeah. And it went from 1.6 million total mm-hmm. to I think it's 15 million, which is a tremendous increase. So it expands it from primary to all doctors. Mm-hmm. And it changes the year of commitment from two years to three years. And the hope is that, you know, if you... If you spend time in a community for three years, you're sinking roots in. You're making friends. You're you're building your business. You're, you know, you're part of the community. Yeah. So it'll be harder to leave. Mm-hmm. Which is what we want. We want exactly. physicians to come here. We want physicians to stay here. Yep. Yeah, and have kids here and yeah, build roots. Absolutely, that's great. Yeah, I know you're gonna. You need to apply for that. Um, <laughs> Credentialing is a third one. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when physicians get credentialed, um, which means that they, they um, pass through the system so that they can um, be paid for their services, mm-hmm. that time window has stretched and stretched and stretched. And... Um, without getting into the details, um, that stretching of that time window um, causes problems for the physician and the practice. Say that I recruit you, you move to my practice, and I'm in the process of getting you credentialed, you're hanging out 
um, not being able to work, but I need to pay you, and you cannot work because you're not credentialed. So you're on my staff for two or three or six months not being able to see patients because I can't charge for you, and yet I'm paying your salary. It's extremely difficult, especially for the small practices. So this credentialing window has shrunk to 30 days, start to finish. And um, so the, the insurance company has to do all of the paperwork and get you loaded into the system so that you're ready to, to be paid on day 31, unless there's something um, very problematic with your, with your background. Okay. That needs more time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rural Health Care Project Grant, these are grants, not loans, and these are for um, practices and physicians that want to expand or buy or build a practice or new services in the rural areas. They can apply for it. I believe it's up to half a million dollars. So, um, for example, a, a practice that's already set up in Almogordo, they want to they want to add a surgery center. They can get a grant for that surgery center. That's adding services to their community. And these are again grants, not loan. Mm-hmm. It's you don't pay it back. It's free money to expand rural healthcare. It's fantastic. And people who do that would still be eligible for that 126% of uh, mm-hmm. Medicare reimbursement for Medicaid patients. Correct. So it's kind of two of your objectives being hit there with uh, expanding care to rural areas. And if it's a new doctor, they can apply for loan repayments. Yeah, now we're talking. Now we're talking, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. There's, it opens up lots of opportunities um, for rural health care. Um, the last, but not least, is the medical malpractice. So, are you ready to get into that? I am, yeah. (laughs) I understand that we have a high one, and people have been asking for um, a lower cap on medical malpractice. And physicians, like everyone else, respond to incentives. So, making New Mexico a place that is easier to practice medicine in, more um, attractive to practice medicine in, will obviously attract more physicians to practice medicine here. And um, if we have such a high medical malpractice uh, cap, it's going to be that much easier for people to find work in in another state that supports their interests better than we do. Correct. Yeah, so we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by having that high of a malpractice cap. Correct. That's my understanding of the issue. That is correct. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets more complicated. Um, So we have the Medical Malpractice Act that started in 76. um, And it worked very well for 40, 45 years. In um, 2021, um, there was a 
It's called House Bill 75. There are lots of changes to the act. Um, and that was very contentious. Um, nobody walked out of that with everything that they wanted. Um, and there were um, lots of problems identified after the fact. One of the problems, actually two of the problems surfaced within that year. So we're talking about um, in the summer of 2021, we realized that um, agents of hospitals were included in the new act. So what that would mean is if you are a, an independent pediatrician, but you um, have a contract with the hospital so that you go and see the, the newborns and check them out. But you're not employed by the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. You have your own practice, but that's part of your services. Um, you would, under the old way, you would have been included as a hospital employee. So you would have been under the higher cap but you would have to pay for your higher insurance instead of the hospital because you're not a hospital employee. So under that scenario, your cap would have changed from 600,000 to 4 million to 4.5 million to five to five and a half, six million. And these are independent practice um, physicians. So it's like, that's a problem that cannot be what the intent was okay so that caused a lot of problems because all of the doctors were like well i'm not going to do any work in the hospital mm -hmm. not if i have to pay for that sort of a cap and i'm not an employee so they were gonna they were definitely not going to work in a hospital they were not going to provide any services at the same time as that, um, it was discovered that outpatient, independent outpatient facilities could not get insurance because their cap, they were lumped in with the hospitals. So their cap went from 600 to four to six million also. The insurance company said, we are not gonna write that. You're not a hospital. Um, we are gonna, we're not in the business of losing money, right? Um, we have to balance out the risk and the payment and all of that. We're not writing that. It was a huge crisis. Um, so we were able to, thanks to the governor, she allowed MedMal to be um, included in the special session in December of 2021, which was only supposed to be on redistricting, she allowed um, the fix for these two MedMal problems to be entered into. It was quite dramatic. It was another um, very difficult session. Um, but we got the agency fixed, and the other, we got a two-year reprieve. So the independent outpatients were still gonna be counted as hospitals, 
but they got a, a two-year period in which to find insurance. During that next year, so we're talking about 2022 now, we looked, we, the medical society and the independent outpatient facilities looked for insurance. There was none to be found. Um, they all asked, they were all denied. It's like, it's not being written. They, the insurance companies would not take that risk to um, provide up to $6 million of insurance for these um, practices. We started making the case all of 2022 that there's not insurance for these groups. They shouldn't be counted as a hospital. They're not hospitals. They don't do the hospital services. Patients don't spend the night. Mm-hmm. They don't have a kitchen. They don't have nighttime staff. I mean, it's in and out. It's ambulatory surgery centers where you go in for a procedure that they do lots of and the patient goes home. Um, much less risky. The patients that get treated in these in these um, independent outpatient facilities are also less risky patients. They have less comorbidities. So for the entire year, we made the case of insurance is too high. Insurance is not available for these groups. If these groups cannot have insurance, they have to close. So these independent outpatient facilities would be closing at the end of 2022 because they would be uninsured. And here we are trying to bring doctors and expand our services and the, the wording of this bill shrunk the services. So now with the 2023 passage, there are three types of entities that are covered under the Medical Malpractice Act. You have independent providers, which are the doctors and their practices. You have the independent outpatient facilities, which are ambulatory surgery centers, freestanding ERs, and urgent cares. And then you have hospitals and their affiliated practices. Hospitals will have a, an urgent care or an ASC. If it's hospital-related, it's counted as a hospital. So now there are three different caps. The independents are $750,000. Um, the independent outpatient facilities are $1 million. And the hospitals, I think this year they're at... Um, they're at five million mm-hmm. to go up to six million over the next two years. Okay. But now we have three different categories. Um, there's insurance available for this middle category, um, so they don't have to go out of practice. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, in a nutshell, that was the medical malpractice win for this year. We solved the problems. That have been two years in the making. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea it was that bad. Uh, interesting. And well, congratulations on getting all five of those things done. Those are huge achievements. 
Um, is there anything that you asked for that you didn't get? Any other parts of your agenda that were uh, shot down in one way or another? Or was that pretty much it for this legislative session? That was pretty much it. And that is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. It's a um, lot. Yeah. Most it's, years, it's if incredible. we get one win, mm-hmm. that's a great year. Um, and this year, we ended up with five really big wins. So it, it was a pretty special year. And I think that um, it's like, why this year? What happened? I think that the, the public started recognizing um, that there was a problem and that for them to get an appointment with their doctor, it took long, um, you know, six months wait, and that that's not normal. That shouldn't be that way. Right. And the other really big change this year was that the physicians themselves were extremely involved. They wrote letters, they called their legislators, um, they attended committees up in Santa Fe, um, there were press conferences that they attended, and they had a white coat day. There were actually two of those, where um, one day we had 100 doctors show up in their white coats on a Saturday. There, we didn't have any bills that day but they came and they sat in the Senate gallery and the senators got to look back up and see this wall of white up there. And it really made an impact on the senators that all of these things that the doctors are asking for, and in that case, it was um, really focused on the medical malpractice because that would have caused a crisis. It really made an impact. And I think that um, during this time, the legislators, both the House and the Senate, really, um, they heard and they understood what the problem was. And that the ultimate goal is getting more doctors into the state. It's recruitment and retention. And we do want good doctors. You know, yeah. we, we as a society deserve to have access to quality care. Right. I agree. Um, along those lines, do you have a plan moving forward for what you want to accomplish next year or maybe some big pie in the sky stuff that you'd like to get um, accomplished in the next 10 years or 20 years just looking forward? So we passed some great laws. Now we need to get them implemented and get them successful. Okay. It's one thing to say, oh, we've got this rural healthcare grant, but now we need to get people to take advantage of it and to use it and to see how it works. Um, so part of you know our next mission is to really focus on the achievements and push them so that we do have people taking advantage of the loan repayment and of the credentialing and the grants and everyone will take advantage of the Medicaid reimbursement. That's, right. that's easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one portion. So, um, 
one of the new projects because um, again focuses on Medicaid but remember we have 48% of New Mexicans are on Medicaid um, we want to tie the higher reimbursement rates you know the 120% mm -hmm. to include preventive care the um, Affordable Care Act had a list of um, 20 preventive care measures that everyone is entitled to. Mm -hmm. Something like a colonoscopy at a certain age. Yep. Yeah. Your, the mammograms, mm -hmm. your shingle shot, all of that. Right. Um, and have those preventive measures covered at the higher rate because right now we're who's covered is um, primary um, care, maternal, child health, and behavioral health. Mm -hmm. That doesn't include a gastroenterologist that's going to do your colonoscopy. That doesn't include the um, radiologist who's doing your mammogram. There are some of those preventive measures that should be covered at the higher rate to encourage... Um, patients and doctors to get the preventive care done. Yeah, you know, on schedule. Yeah, that makes sense. It saves lives because it can catch things before they get bad, and it saves money because it's a lot easier to deal with something in its earlier stages than later on. We're doing these end of life measures that you know cost a lot of money. Correct. Get, getting sent to the ICU or tertiary care center instead of your local hospital to get the preventative stuff done. Right. So, so as it stands right now, it's really just the primary care, the maybe OB-GYN type care and, and mental health that is given that extra 20%. The child, 20%. And, child and maternal okay. health. Mm -hmm. So pediatricians, OB-GYN, um, and the devil's always in the details. So I don't know exactly how that is going to be defined, mm -hmm. you know, primary care. That's there's different definitions for right. it. Um, and we haven't received word from the state yet exactly what does maternal health care look like? What, it, what does that include? Mm -hmm. Does it include a hysterectomy that's voluntary, that's elective, you know, mm -hmm. or not? Right. So. Interesting. So is there anything we haven't covered so far that you'd like to discuss? Any other wins for the New Mexico Medical Society or just information you'd want someone in New Mexico to know about what it is that you do? I think it's, it's important to um, realize that physicians are a special breed of professional in that... Um, they're taking the, the hard road. And it's important to realize that underlying the physician, their, their goal is to treat and to help people. And that we all have these incredibly complex bodies. That's what we're born with. And there's always problems with these complex bodies. Some of them 
come out better than others and some have more problems than others and there's no perfect cure but the physicians are focused on trying to make each body each person as helpful or as healthy and strong and um, full of life as they can so that you can so that everyone can reach their potential that's an extremely difficult job and we all rely on physicians to help us because as they say you know if you don't have your health you don't have anything and we rely on them to help us along with that we're we're all also responsible for how we take care of this ingenious body that we've all been given and um, that we are part of the equation it's not just the physician's responsibility it's each of ours responsibility and it's a complex dynamic between the patient and the physician and we need to do our part to help that help that along so that we have that that um, treasure it's it's interesting um, one of the things I love about this job is no two days are ever the same today I'm talking with Lucas yesterday I was at a career day at Los Padillas Elementary with two of our physicians they were talking to the the school kids about being a doctor and answering questions and tapping on having them tap the patellar tendon reflex and listening through stethoscope and and whatnot and um, it was fascinating the kids absolutely loved it and each of the three classes that they spoke with said well what when did you decide to be a doctor and both doctors had decided as a child to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. One received a kit, you know, and she went around and with the stethoscope and treated her grandparents and gave gave them candy, pills, you know, to get well. And she really enjoyed making people well, that feeling of helping them. And the other had a childhood illness in the hospital and looked at the at the doctors and how they helped him and it's like that's what I want to do I want to help people and I think it's important to realize that that's underneath the doctors you know that that drive to help people and um, so just I think it's important that we maintain that recognition yeah and Thank you, Annie, for coming on. I think that's a great place to leave off. And um, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you for listening to another episode of Nuevo Healthcare Network. Subscribe to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and feel free to email comments, questions, and suggestions for future guests to Nuevo Healthcare Network at gmail.com. Till next time.